With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. This is the Lightning Round Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Sisti and Jamie Hoyle. Go Chargers, go! This is the Lightning Round Podcast here to talk about the Chargers' statement win in Seattle for Jamie, who is tweeting such intellectual content at lightning <laughs> underscore round i am garrett sisty which is at garrett sisty on twitter we'll have a few phone calls to answer we'll break down some storylines from sunday's win but we got a donation this week yes we do we have a very generous donation from Stuart cohen and thank you very much for picking out the one frustrated tweet that i sent out or the the most frustrated <laughs> tweet i sent out at the most frustrating point of the game to mock me i appreciate that partner thank you <laughs> Asshole. <laughs> you you should have kept that in the drafts, man. <laughs> you can't even get to the donation, huh? I can't. Anyway, very generous donation from Stuart, Co- Stuart Cohen. Thank you very much, Stuart. We appreciate the donation. And like we always say, we appreciate everybody who supports us, no matter how they choose to do so, whether it's with money, which we prefer, or listening to the show, or interacting with us on Twitter or through the app or rating us on iTunes, whatever it may be, we appreciate all of your continued support because without you people listening and 
supporting us and interacting with us, there would be no point in doing this. So thank you. Yep. Thank you, Stuart. Appreciate it. I think he's donated before, so thank you again for another donation. And uh, we got a lot of phone calls this week, uh, some we couldn't even get to, but uh, we got four of them. And let's go ahead and start with a caller named Jeff. Hey, this is Jeff from Enemy Territory here up in Reading. With you both thankfully being wrong about the outcome of the Seahawks game, would you either of you care to update um, your doom and gloom predictions for the final score? I'm thinking at least a 12-4 and four season. Thanks. Great podcast every week, and go Bolts. So, Jeff, first of all, thank you for the, the question. I appreciate that. Um, little curious about the doom and gloom quote predictions. I don't know if you're just referring to the one loss against Seattle that we predicted or yeah. if you think that us predicting, you know, 10 plus wins, I think Garrett predicted the Chargers to go 10 and 6. Yep. I predicted them to go 11 and 5. This from a team that won what five games 2 years ago. Uh I wouldn't call that doom and gloom, but nonetheless, um I you know, I I still think they're going to be somewhere in that you know, 10 to 12 game uh, area, I'm still going to stick with 11 and five, but uh, 12 and four isn't out of the out of the realm of possibility just based on them picking up a win that neither one of us and most fans, for that matter, didn't see coming, and uh, you know, still having some favorable matchups coming up down the stretch. Yeah, especially the next three games. Um, yeah, I couldn't really get past the doom and gloom either because it, like being 10 and six, 11 and five is actually pretty good, especially since they haven't had 10-plus win seasons since 2009. So I'd say that'd be the opposite of doom and gloom to me. I mean, that 2009, they went 13-3. and They mm-hmm. won the AFC West. So, yep. yeah, man, uh, I wouldn't call it doom and gloom. But, uh, sure, I'll update it. Uh, I'll, I guess because I had them losing in Seattle, I'll, I'll move it up to 11-5 if that makes you happy. <laughs> and it makes us less doom and gloom. Yeah, I don't get the doom and gloom thing, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, when we first did our predictions, uh, I said that when I first went through it, I had them, you know, my initial response was they could really go 12 and 4. And I scaled it back to 11 and 5 just because 12 and 4 seemed overly optimistic. And even 11 and 5 seemed like I was, you know, uh, kind of fooling myself based on what we've seen over the last couple seasons. But, you know, if, if 11 and 5 is doom and gloom, then, you know, the sky is falling, I guess. So the next question, yeah, it comes from Curtis, who called in. Yo, it's Curtis from Ohio. Been listening to y'all since the Flash Gordon pick. My question is, now that the Chargers have woken up and cut Caleb Sturgis, will they stay woke and realize Donnie Jones isn't the answer of punter and bring in someone like Ryan Santosa from men that can punt and do kickoffs? Or will they ride Ronnie Jones into the draft? Thank y'all. At the press conference on Monday, Anthony Lynn said the short kicks was a game plan issue. That was de- by design by Donnie Jones. Uh-huh. But, uh, yeah, sure. He, he's not fooling me, that's for sure. Uh, but the uh, <laughs> the distance uh, of Jones' kicks is a problem. And I'm sure we'll get into it here when we talk about some of these storylines. But um, I don't think they cut Donnie Jones. I think they're going to ride him out to the end of the year. I have a feeling because Jones hasn't really hurt them in terms of any substantial returns. They will probably sacrifice the distance for the return yards, but that's just a, a feeling I have. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think they're, 
I, they're convinced that he's a good holder. They, you know, they had their concerns about Drew Kayser, which is why they, they cut Kayser. So it sounds like they're going to sacrifice the punting distance and they'll cover for him by saying that a, a punter who has been averaging 42 yards a kick, I think that the actual number is 41.7 yards a kick since he became a charger. And I think that's over 17 attempts, if I'm not, not mistaken. He has two punts that have been over 45 yards, one of which needed to roll about 20 yards before it cleared 50. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, so he, those kicks are, those short kicks are not by design. He just doesn't have the leg, but they're going to cover for him because they've had t- too much turnover at the place kicker position. And they're just not going to go through that again at the punter spot, I don't think. So I think they'll ride it out and either try to address it in free agency or the draft. But yeah, we're stuck with Donnie Jones for the rest of the season. That's, that's my gut feeling. Yeah, I we agree there, but also we probably agree that that's not what we would do. No, that's not what we would do. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. I think it's going to hurt them eventually. Um, it should have hurt them in Cleveland, but they got away with it. Uh, they've gotten away with it to some extent in the last couple of games, but it's going to catch up with them eventually. So uh, I would like to see them address it, but I don't think they will. And, you know, I kind of referenced it. We should probably mention it at this point since we're talking about kickers anyway. Um the turnover at the kicker position. They finally made a decision to move on from, from Caleb Sturgis. Thank God. Uh, I don't know that I would say the team is, you know, woke necessarily. I think they just got hit over the head with reality and they, they made a move they had to make. But in this case, you know, you're probably the first person Curtis to ever refer to the chargers and how they run their team as being woke. And you will <laughs> probably be the last person to refer to them in that manner as well. <laughs> they held on to Sturgis just a little bit too long. Okay, let's go ahead and take this next call from Neil. Hey, guys. Neil from Orange County, California. Love the show. You guys are great. I listen to you guys every week. Question for you about Forrest Lamp. What is your take on Forrest Lamp? Is it an injury issue? Is it a conditioning issue, or is it just not grasping the playbook? I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Thanks, guys. So, Neil, um, I you know we've kind of talked about this in the past, and I think we've just reached the point now where there's no reason to put Lamp in the lineup. I think Michael Schofield has exceeded their expectations. He's been the starter since training camp. We talked about it going into training camp when we did our training camp primer that if Lamp was not ready by the third preseason game, that Schofield would at least start the first four games. And I think he has reached the point where he has earned that job. And, you know, it's kind of an, if it ain't fixed, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of a thing where he's playing well. The line is starting to gel. They're opening some massive holes in the running game. The protection has been really good for Forrest, Ri- for Forrest Rivers, for Phillip Rivers. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think there's no urgency, no real immediate need to put Lamp in the lineup. And you could argue that he should be active. Maybe they can get him some snaps and some blowout games down the stretch if they have an opportunity to do so. But right now, there's no need to put him in the starting lineup. So I think that's what it is. They've just reached the conclusion that Schofield's playing well and there's no immediate need to make a change. Right. I don't think they need to make the move, obviously, and you know eject Schofield from his guard spot because he's you know he's done a nice job and that that line has done well as a unit. Uh, what I am concerned with is that they don't even make him active, and it's not even that if one of those guards go down with an injury that he would possibly be the backup. That's where it's more concerning, and you'd think 
it's more mental than it is physical because he's been ready to go for a while now. And, you know, whether it's not feeling comfortable off the injury or not grasping the playbook, as you say, Neil, I, I'm not sure. But at this point, it seems more mental than physical. And, you know, this is coming off a week where there were a lot of changeover after the bye. We saw Michael Davis start over Trevor Williams. We saw Sam Tevy start over Joe Barksdale. And even Barksdale get some snaps for three to four series. He got... 12 total snaps on Sunday. Ochenna Nwosu getting the most snaps of his career, part of that being Landrum, but they moved him around a lot. And so theoretically you'd think that you'd activate him and maybe this is the time to get him involved. But, you know, even the fifth-round pick, Scott Questenberry, is getting looks at um, on special teams. So, you know, I'm not quite sure what it is. I don't know if anybody's got an answer except somebody in that building. But right now, um, if you're asking if it's mental or physical, it seems it's probably more mental than it is physical right now. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, Lynn hinted at that before they activated him, that he wasn't quite there yet. Maybe he didn't quite trust his knee, didn't feel like he was quite 100%. So um, the team seems to feel like he's ready physically, but he's not out there. So there's something going on. Um, I don't know that it's the playbook. There's really no way of knowing for sure what it is. But, uh, you know, it could just be two. They don't feel like they need him right now. If he's not going to start, maybe they just feel like he needs another redshirt season. And they'll bring him back in camp next year and give him a chance to crack the starting lineup. But there's no, you know, if if he's playing, if he, if he's not going to be on the field, maybe there's just no rush to activate him. I don't know. Yeah, no, I I understand it's kind of a numbers game at this point, and everybody's been playing well across that line, so they want to keep it intact, and that's why Forest Lamp. I almost did Forest Rivers like you did. <laughs> Forest Lamp uh, isn't in the starting lineup, but the fact that he just is an active. You know, as a fallback plan is a little concern, a little bit more yeah. concerning to me. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, you, you'd at least want to see him in there as a backup. Yeah, with an opportunity to play if somebody got hurt. But they're they're seeing something they're not liking, obviously. So, yep. I guess we'll find out in time. Yep. All right. So, last question here is from Barton. Hey guys, Barton from Orange County here. Uh, my question is this: um, After uh, where we stand uh, after our win in Seattle, um, what do you think we need in the draft? I know it's super early, but I like to watch college ball, watching uh, players that maybe the Chargers will draft. Love to watch Clemson for their uh, defensive line, obviously Alabama for their safety um, and their defensive tackle. Um, anyway, um, Chargers needs uh, as it stands right now in the season uh defensive tackle number one middle linebacker free safety uh maybe some edge help um if bosa never gets healthy uh maybe an offensive tackle um love to know your thoughts thank you very much you guys are doing a great job bye so i mean you named most of the positions barton um on defense obviously free safety is a big one Defensive tackle is going to be a real big one in the offseason with, you know, me bang getting up there. Uh, linebacker, of course. You know, I wouldn't have said it last offseason, but they definitely need some corner depth and some edge depth too. Uh, offense, you mentioned tackle. A tight end two would be nice uh, opposite Hunter Henry. And, you know, no matter how good Rivers is playing, he is up there in age and at some point – you got to get ahead of the curve and draft the successor. So that's not another realm of possibility, but uh, certainly a topic we'll be discussing in the offseason for sure. Yeah. Uh, there, I mean, there are plenty of positions they could certainly address in the draft in the first round. Uh, corner looks like it's becoming a need 
with Hayward kind of regressing a little bit and them volleying back and forth between Trevor Williams and Michael Davis. Obviously, there is a need at free safety. If the plan is to play Derwin James at strong safety the majority of the time, um, with Kaiser White missing most of this season, uh, Denzel Perriman not necessarily being great this year, even though he's been fully healthy, and uh, Jatavis Brown being up and down, they could still you could make an argument they still have a need at linebacker, certainly defensive tackle with Brandon Meebane and. Um, Corey Legit both potentially not being with the team next year based on the way their contracts are structured. There are, you know, several positions that they could go to for sure. By the way, am I the only one who heard Dana White's voice in Barton in that recording? Did did you oh. catch that similarity? Uh-uh. He sounds just like Dana White to me. <laughs> All right, so let's go ahead and move on to these storylines. Give me your first storyline from the Chargers win on Sunday. Well, I think the biggest storyline is the fact that the Chargers became – the first AFC team to win in Seattle since Russell Wilson became the starting quarterback for the Seahawks in 2012. And the way they 2011? did it. 2011? 2011. And the way they did it. You know, they had been 12-0 and at home against AFC teams since Wilson became the starter. Chargers go in there, basically dominate 44 out of 60 minutes. I thought they were the most physical team on the field. They averaged 7.1 yards per rush attempt, 7.5 yards per play. Uh, beat them up with big plays, 18 plays of 10-plus yards, seven plays of 20 or more yards, made big plays on defense with four sacks, seven and a half tackles for loss, and the, and the pick six from Desmond King. Basically, they went into Seattle. They did what had previously been next to impossible for AFC teams, and they they bullied the bully. They beat Seattle at their own game. They ran the ball down their throat. They dared them to beat the defense, which they couldn't do. Uh, they they kept it close. They got, they got a they had that two score lead going into the half and basically dared Seattle to come back and they were not able to do so. So they they played a fantastic game and they and you know getting that statement win is huge the way they did it in Seattle. Yeah, so we got the same exact thing and I'll just kind of piggyback on that because I mean you mentioned it. The Chargers were more physical than the Seahawks were on Sunday and. That's the Seahawks game. You know, outside with the first Seattle offensive drive aside, Chargers defense really suffocated the Seahawks offense. They sold hard to stop the run early on, and I think they did a really good job of doing that, again, outside of the first drive. Seahawks were 4 of 15 on third downs. Chargers got a lot of penetration. They had seven and a half tackles for a loss. They got they sacked Russell Wilson four times, and they just won at the line of scrimmage, and it set up a lot of third and longs for Seattle. And you saw during that game twice the Seahawks showed their frustration by trying to get some late hits in. DJ Fluker, Justin Britt both got personal foul penalties trying to push the pile late. The Seahawks really tried to get in the Chargers' head during this game, too. You saw after every incompletion, every hit, every dropped ball, there was a Seahawks player clapping and in the Chargers' Talking trash. Every single time. And the Chargers never backed down. And I know that's kind of cliche, maybe a little bit corny, but the Seahawks tried to bait the Chargers. I mean, that's that's their game. They tried to get in their head, and they went toe-to-toe with them. And, you know, on offense, the Seahawks... They want to pound the rock. They want to keep the ball on long, drawn-out possessions, keep the ball out of Rivers' hands, and keep the crowd in it. And the Chargers took it to them. They beat them on the ground. Melvin Gordon had 113 rushing yards. You talked about both Gordon and Eckler averaged over seven yards per carry, and they just ran it down the Seahawks' throat. And even with the stalled drives, you talked about some of the splash plays of 10-plus yards. 
It just seems like they look like they could move the ball at will. And, you know, after this win, there was a lot of talk about how, you know, the Chargers have to dominate games like this and better teams will beat them um, if they play the way they did against the Seahawks. But that game wasn't as close as the score indicated. I mean, again, the first drive was a letdown uh, for the Seahawks, but they basically scored when the Chargers were trying to relent yards for time. You know, the drive before half, Gus went in that soft zone. They just wanted to eat up clock and essentially did the same uh, to the second-to-last drive by the Seahawks. And the Chargers obviously should have had 30 points with the missed kicks, but they 31, because if they don't miss the first kick, they're not going for two on the second touchdown. It would right. have been 31-14 oh, yeah. or 31-10. Yeah, so 30-plus, you know, 30-31, at least 30-plus points – you know, they can't dominate every single game, but you saw, you know, Seahawks, Titans are average, maybe above average teams in the NFL. But even though those both those games came down to the wire, the Chargers absolutely dominated both those games. Yeah, I, I think they dominated Seattle more so than they dominated the, the Tennessee game just yeah. because of the way Tennessee controlled the clock and was able to march up and down the field. They got stops when they needed them, but I wouldn't say the Chargers necessarily dominated mm. the, the Titans game the way they did the Seahawks game. You know, they give up the first drive, and then after that, as the Seahawks couldn't do anything. I mean, from, you know, the eight-minute mark uh, or the six-minute mark of the first quarter until about the six-minute mark of the fourth quarter, the Seahawks really didn't move the ball unless the Chargers let them move the ball. There was no forward progress for that Seahawks team. They couldn't run the ball. The Chargers' pass rush was extremely disciplined, and they pinned Russell Wilson in the pocket. Even when he wanted to run, he couldn't find a running lane. There were plays where they were just driving DJ Fluker and some of the other interior linemen back into his lap and freezing him in the pocket, and he just didn't know what to do with the ball. Uh, I mean, they, they completely dominated the line of scrimmage. Um, they And like I said earlier, they, they bullied the bully. I mean, Seattle wins at home in particular through intimidation. They win through intimidation from the crowd, from the noise, and they win by intimidation through reputation because people go in there kind of half beat because it's so difficult to win in that environment. And the chargers did not let the Seahawks get in their head. They just kept making plays, kept chipping away. They find a way to win. They come up with the huge pick six at the end, at the end of the fourth quarter to put the game away. But I mean, really, you know, you're looking at that game with a competent kicker. That's a 31 to 10 lead with six minutes to go in the fourth quarter in Seattle. And that just doesn't happen in the Russell Wilson, Pete Carroll era. It just doesn't. So that is a very, very impressive win for this Chargers team. Hello, I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation. And I want to tell you about my new show, It Seems Smart. It Seems Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seem smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain. Or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission. Or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart. You know, we'll see how good Seattle winds up being this year. They're kind of in a retooling slash rebuilding mode. And, and that's not to take anything away from the Chargers. Um, but, you know, we'll see what this win looks like at the end of the season. But to go in there and control the game the way they did 
is huge, and it's the kind of thing that really puts your puts a stamp on a team as a playoff contender, somebody who's going to be dangerous come December and January, because they they showed that they can win in a hostile environment and they can, you know, they can push they can push a team around when they need to, and that's not something we're accustomed to seeing from any Chargers team. They've always been soft physically and mentally. Yeah, absolutely, but did not look that way on Sunday, and you know I think. Even if the Browns don't end up being any good and the Titans fall off and the Seahawks end up not being a good team, they ended up catching them when they were good at one point. I mean, the Browns were coming off an emotional win at that point, and they were hot riding a new Baker Mayfield, the franchise quarterback, coming into that week, and they were as hot as could be. And the Seahawks were, you know, had won four of their last five, and of course, they never lost at home against an AFC team. So, even though they might not be good at the end of the year, where they caught them in the year seems a little bit more impressive just because they were you know, so good. And that's not a game you would expect the Chargers to win, but they ended up going in there and doing it. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought they would lose. And honestly, I thought most of the reason they would lose would have to do with the environment and the intimidation factor of playing in that venue, which is one of the loudest and most intimidating venues to play in in the league. Um, mm-hmm. And regardless of what Seattle's record winds up being at the end of the year, to go in there and win that game the way they did and be in utter complete control of it for, you know, basically the last 44 minutes of the game is incredibly impressive. Uh, so you, you def- definitely don't want to take anything away from them, regardless of what Seattle's record winds up being. To go in there and do what they did really says a lot about the character and the heart and the grit of this team, which are words that. We just haven't used to describe the Chargers in a long time. Definitely not. Uh, okay, so I'll move on to the next one. And uh, you kind of started to talk about it a little bit earlier, but uh, let, let's talk about Drew Kayser, man. How about it wasn't his fault after all? We got, <laughs> I mean, the Chargers were so convinced that the Chargers kicking woes were linked to Drew Kayser's holding. And because he struggled to start the year punting, they just outright cut him. And then, of course, you know, you mentioned Caleb Sturgis got cut on Monday. He missed the field goal, two extra points. Uh, his former teammate, Donnie Jones, and that chemistry they're trying to recreate with the success they had in Philadelphia just didn't work out. And they ended up cutting Sturgis. And then in regards to punting, they've each now punted four games. Johnny Jones is averaging 41.8 yards per punt. Uh, I think he said 41.7, but uh, it's still, we're in the ballpark. 41.8 yards per punt this year. Drew Kayser. Average 48.4 yards per punt. Donnie Jones is 41.8, is worse than the NFL. <laughs> in fact, he's ranked as the 34th best punter in the category when you take into account teams that fielded more than one punter. He could not be any worse. He's not even the 30. There's 32 teams in the league, mind you. He's the 34th worst punter. <laughs> Drew Kayser, the 48.4 yards per punt is third best in the NFL. So even that big faux pas he had against the Rams where he took three steps with his foot against the back end zone, even with that, if he averages 48 yards per punt, he'd be a top five punter right now. And the Chargers just used Drew Kayser as a scapegoat for the kicking troubles. They cut the absolute wrong player. Michael Badgley, obviously perfect through the two games he was with the Chargers so far, but... They got worse with Donnie Jones in the punting game. They cut the wrong player, and it was not Drew Kayser's fault after all. Is anybody else surprised they didn't cut Mike Wint? <laughs> and Is tried that, another and route? Gone another route. I mean, I, I would have bet money that they would have found another scapegoat before cutting Sturgis because they were so committed 
to giving him every opportunity to the point that after he missed an extra point and a field goal, they, for whatever reason, absentmindedly ran him out there to kick an extra point in a situation where a two-point conversion makes it a 17-point game and the game is over. I mean, they were so hell-bent on letting him prove he could make clutch kicks and giving him every opportunity to succeed that they went against the book and they kept a two-score game, a two-score game by having him kick an extra point at, after uh, Desmond King's interception return for a touchdown. That's how committed they were to giving him every chance was book be damned. Doesn't matter if we can make it a three score game. Let's get him out there and give him a chance to make a clutch kick. I mean, just ridiculous. So thank God they remedied that. Now, unfortunately, like we talked about earlier, they are stuck with Donnie Jones. And it seems like whatever it was that Drew Kayser was trying to say about his situation after they cut him on Twitter for a couple weeks after the, after the move was made, now it seems like he is fully vindicated. He's got a job. He's with the Packers on their practice squad. Um, and Donnie Jones is averaging just under 42 yards a kick, which is pretty pathetic for an NFL punter. 34th. Yeah. 34th, 34th out of 32 teams. That's not good. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> and what, I mean, we're talking about Caleb Sturgis has maybe the world's longest leash in terms of, you know, missing kicks and everything. But then Drew Kayser. Uh, makes one block punt mistake and it's lights out and he's gone. Like they didn't give him a long leash at all. They didn't. No, and there was no talk before they got rid of him of it being his fault. They just yeah. like all of a sudden, oh, the Chargers are trying out punters. Well, there goes Drew Kayser. Like yeah. there was no, no whispers, no talk of him being the problem until after they cut him and they had to justify cutting somebody who was averaging 48 yards a punt. No, they just gave him the hook and tried out holders and punters that week and he was gone. Yep. Yeah, I mean, they, they really, really mistreated Drew Kayser. They've got him out doing publicity stuff and, and community outreach and they cut yeah. him while he's at the hospital dealing with sick kids. Yeah. Real classy. Yeah. That was bad. That was That was not a good move. And man, I feel bad. I mean, and they were talking about how bad Drew Kayser was to start the year, which part of the reason why they cut him. But yeah, I mean, he was bottom five, but he's top three now. Anyway, right, so what, <laughs> now what do you got? My next my next storyline is basically the fact that the players overcame a whole lot of adversity and self inflicted wounds uh, to win that game. Uh, so. Let's just think about some of the things they overcame. First of all, they give up the, the long touchdown drive to start the game. The uh, Seattle marches down the field for eight minutes, scores a touchdown. All of a sudden, you're in the hole on the road. Not a good start. Then you drive down. You think you're going to tie the score. Sturgis misses the extra point. Then as the game goes on, they drop four or five passes. They only had the ball for 24 out of 60 minutes on offense. Wind up missing three total kicks. They don't, they basically don't move the ball outside of two drives in the second half. Commit 12 penalties for 105 yards, including five on special teams, which were absolutely atrocious. And then you have two huge coaching gaffes in the game management area in the last 22 minutes of the game that probably should have cost them the game. The first one coming with about 718 left in the third quarter. Chargers have a fourth and four from the Seattle 24. Having already seen Sturgis miss a kick, they decide to trot him out for a 42-yard field goal, which he misses. Instead of putting the ball in Phillip Rivers' hands that close to the red zone and giving him a chance to make a play, they decide to 
hand another opportunity to to Caleb Sturgis, and of course he pisses it away. And then the last one, which I mentioned earlier, the mental lapse from Anthony Lynn deciding to kick the PAT after Des King's pick six when converting a two-point conversion try would have made it a 17-point game with 6.44 remaining and ended the game. So he kicked a PAT, keeping a two-score game, a two-score game, instead of turning it into a three-score game with a two-point conversion. So they overcome all of these things to still win in a tough environment on the road against a good physical football team. Uh, and those are the kind of things that I think successful seasons are made of. You know, we talk about it. This is a game they would have lost, just like the Tennessee game. This is a game they would have lost last year, the year before, the year before that. They they would have had a lead in the fourth quarter, found a way to give it up, and they did not do it this time. They hung in there. They made plays when they needed to, and they won the game. So kudos to them for overcoming so much adversity, uh, including some pretty shoddy coaching at the end of the game there and finding a way to win a game they had to have on the road. Yeah, and you know, I think at some point we have to have a discussion about how NFL coaches should have game managers on the sideline like McVay does, you know? What are the odds? What should you do here? Weigh them and let Lynn make a decision because he's just not doing it. And I know the Chargers and Telesco don't really do analytics so much, but that just seems like a no-brainer. That's something you do. Have an extra person on the sideline making sure, going, hey, listen, you know, if you go for two here, that's three scores instead of two. You kick this extra point, you're only making it 16. Yeah. I mean, really, an NFL coach should not need somebody on the sideline to tell him, hey, two here is better than one. It makes it a three-score game, and it ices the game with 644 remaining. He shouldn't really need somebody to do the math for him on that. <laughs> but... <laughs> If it he does, hurt. it wouldn't hurt. It helps to have an extra voice, but he should be able to add, okay, we're up 15, I make the kick, it's 16, it's still a two-score game, we get the two-point conversion, it's 17, the game's over, okay, let's go for two. Let's put the ball in my quarterback's hand instead of relying on Caleb Sturgis' right foot, which has gotten us nowhere all season. It just yeah. it doesn't make sense. Luckily, the Chargers have got out of this without Caleb Sturgis costing them any games. So good on them for that. Yeah, they by the skin of their teeth, by yeah. the hair on their chinny chin chin, they got out of there without <laughs> <laughs> without losing a game due to because due to Sturgis. Of Sturgis, yeah, yeah. Listen, there there were some mistakes on Sunday. Uh, Lynn had his mistakes, and there's, you know, while watching this game, I had a thought, and um, I couldn't shake it, and I want to talk about it now, and I want to give a shout out to the Chargers wide receivers coach Phil McGagan, because you know, as these weeks keep ticking off and the wins pile up, we've discussed, you know, the lack of adjustments. You know, we're talking about Lynn and electing to put the game on Sturgis's foot instead of letting Rivers put a three-score game ahead and take that out of reach. And we've, of course, took George Stewart, the special teams coordinator, to the woodshed this year. But, you know, we've talked about how good Keenan Allen has been and the progression of Tyrell Williams and, you know, Mike Williams really stepping up too. And I think McGagan might start deserve some love from us. I mean, it's his first year as a wide receiver coach. But when you see this leap, you know, from the Williams brothers, Mike and Tyrell, 
and the players get the praise, but I've just, I don't know, I've been impressed that, you know, this group has done good as a whole. Tyrell Williams making contested catches in traffic, and then Mike Williams having no separation his rookie year, being exactly what he thought he was in college, but now still making some plays and becoming a solid receiving weapon, even though he had a really bad drop by an absolute dime by Phillip Rivers. But, uh, you know, in, in training camp, the players talked about, you know, how close they were to, to McGagan, and it was the first time I ever heard his name, and I kind of just, you know, pass it off as a fluff piece in a slow football news cycle. But there might be something to this, because they're all pretty much playing at a high level. I mean, except Travis Benjamin. I don't think anybody <laughs> can help him. But And I also like that now Travis Benjamin is relegated to your $7 million decoy piece on motion sets. Like They're just like, hey, run by Phillip Rivers. Oops, as I hit the mic. Hey, just run by Phillip Rivers and make the linebackers think about it for a second. That's basically it. They gave him one jet sweep, but... He got no targets. He's just he's basically a decoy piece. But anyway, um, you know, we'll get a better grasp of it at the end of the year. But it just it seems like there's been a jump from every receiver so far this year, not named Travis Benjamin. And I don't think we can ignore McGagan's imprint on this wide receiver course growth so far this year because it's been really impressive how good Tyrell Williams has looked and how good Mike Williams has done in spots this year. So um, I'm impressed, and uh, I just thought McGagan deserves some love because we've fought on a lot of this coaching staff and some bad choices, and I think deservingly so. But uh, while watching this game, I'm like, man, Tyrell Williams with another contested catch where he's almost falling out of bounds but able to get down, and Mike Williams able to uh, tiptoe along the sideline and spin out and still get a touchdown out of that and break a tackle. So, you know, uh, good on them. I, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with McGagan so far. Yeah, he's doing a good job. I mean, the work he's done with Tyro Williams in particular is pretty impressive. I mean, Williams now is becoming one of the more reliable blockers in the wide receiver group. He is making the contested catches that you mentioned. He's obviously still stretching the field which is fantastic. His hands are a lot stronger. I mean, his awareness to get his right knee down inside the, the sideline there in the end zone to make that catch when he knew he wasn't going to get his feet down was, I mean, that that's veteran, you know, pro bowl caliber yeah. stuff, getting your mm-hmm. knee down and making sure you're in bounds. Yeah. Um, Cause live, it looked like he didn't get in, mm-hmm. but then you see the knee come down before the elbow comes out, comes down out of bounds and, he goes down and really digs that ball out. That's probably a ball he doesn't even get in a position to catch last year or the year before that. You know, he's, and now he's looking for the ball. He's fighting for the ball. He's coming back to the ball. These are all things that we have not seen him do. So that, that progression is really impressive. I think, I don't know. I think the Mike Williams stuff, I think they're scheming him open in a lot of cases. I don't think he's had as much of a leap as some people say he has. And a lot of that is the, the way that they're, combining routes to his side of the field and pulling coverage off of him. Um, but other than that, I mean, you know, Keenan Allen's still a stud. They're getting a lot out of Tyrell. Um, I think it's very impressive what McGagan's doing, and this is a wide receiver group that is growing, it seems, by the week, and that's a good sign. Yeah. Uh, so my next storyline is I just think, you know, we I feel like we've been saying this for the last couple of weeks, but I think it mentions – it bears mentioning again uh, – the Chargers win with a total team effort. They got production up and down the roster again, including from death guys. Uh, you know, they get their two TDs from Rivers. They get 100 yards each from Allen and, and uh, Melvin Gordon. Mike and Tyrell both catch touchdown passes. They have three players with 10-plus tackles. 
a die makes two big plays, a sack and tipping that last throw in the end zone. Huge. Legit, yeah, Legit comes up with his best game in probably four years. Uh, <laughs> he was a monster against the run. Did a, you know, didn't get a whole lot of pressure, but was very integral in terms of um, being disruptive and making plays against the run. Hayward came up with probably his best play in coverage, breaking up a pass, um, a pass in the end zone at one point. They get sacks from Rochelle and Square. Uh, you know, Phillips stepping up, having six tackles again. I mean, just up and down the roster on both sides of the ball, they're getting high end production out of everybody. And that's a credit to the players. I think that is a credit to the coaching staff for putting these guys in a better position to succeed. And, you know, they're giving certain guys larger roles and they're all responding when they're being given these roles. And that, that just says a lot about the, like I mentioned earlier, the character and the grit that they have in that locker room that these guys are grabbing hold of those opportunities, making plays. Everybody, you know, there's, a, it's a different guy every week making a big play. And that's how, Playoff games are won. That's how, dare I say, Super Bowls are won. Not that I'm saying they're, you know, a lot <laughs> to win the Super Bowl or anything, but yeah. I feel like every week I'm getting more confident in their ability to win games in January and the the depth of production they're getting up and down the roster is a big reason why. Yeah, and we you know, we've talked about on this podcast how, you know, our analysis is always ever changing and it's kind of fluid and you know, we've kind of bagged on Jalila Dye for, God, seven games now. But Jalila Dye had a hell of a game. That sack was impressive. And the tipped ball at the end was key. Adrian Phillips got it uh, against Tennessee. This week is Jalila Dye. I'll throw another name out there. Derek Watt, I thought, had a pretty good game. Had a key block to spring Melvin Gordon for the touchdown. Had a really good special teams tackle. He's been good on special teams again. It is. It's happening up and down the roster. And when you've got Keenan Allen over 100, Melvin Gordon over 100, and both Mike and Tyrell Williams, both with TD catches, that is impressive. And, you know, a lot of guys, and it wasn't just, you know, Melvin Ingram showing up and getting lots of sacks, getting stu- getting sacks from Square and Rochelle and, and uh, getting pressure, interior pressure from Corey Legit and Brandon Meebane showing up a little bit and uh as well in the run game it was across the board it was very good from a lot of key depth players yeah it really was they even got a little bit of pressure out of Nwosu with him playing the most snaps so far in his career yeah um you know just solid production up and down the lineup they're not leaning on any one guy and you mentioned melvin ingram not getting a ton of sacks he did a lot of dirty work in the running game yep. on sunday a lot he was very active on the edge he said a mean edge uh, he was driving guys back, you know, really plugging running lanes and creating opportunities for guys to come help and finish tackles. He played a very integral role in them stopping the run as the game went on. Uh, so he deserves a lot of credit. He's not putting up the flashy numbers. And I think that makes people think that he's not playing well. But if you watch the tape, uh, he's been very good against the run for the majority of this season. And it seems like he's getting better and better and better and more accepting of doing the dirty work, which is not something you could always count on him doing. Yeah, and I might I might catch a little heat for this, but um, after the game, Anthony Lynn was asked about you know the substitution of Michael Davison for Trevor Williams, and he had talked about a key to that was because Michael Davis was so good in the run game, and because they wanted to stop the run against Seattle. You know, Michael Davis made a very bad play at the end of the game and gave up a pretty deep pass too, where he just missed 
his jab at the line of scrimmage. But um, in the run game, Michael Davis did pretty good. And um, once he stuck on the guys, he really did bring them down. And he did look good in the run game. And I, I understand from a game plan perspective, if you're trying to stop the run and you think Trevor Williams has struggled with that this year and you've got a sure tackler in Michael Davis on the outside and you want, and that's one of the ways you want to stop the run, I understand it. Um, but I know that Lynn's talking about they're going to be switching them in and out week to week, so we'll see what happens next week. But I thought that was interesting with uh, with a game plan issue for uh, Michael Davis in the run game. Yeah, you know, I think now is a good time to be experimenting with Davis and, and Williams anyway because, you know, you're coming up on a stretch here with the, the Raiders and the Cardinals in consecutive weeks. There are going to be good opportunities to get Davis on the field and see if you can have him kind of build some confidence and become a more regular contributor in coverage. He did struggle on Sunday. Uh, the, the long the long pass was bad. The pass interference in the end zone was not a good look. Uh, he got beat on a deep ball over the middle as well that was on that wound up being underthrown by uh, Russell Wilson on a third down in the third or fourth quarter. Um, he was pushed. Said it looked like he got pushed at the top of the route, which is what created the separation and kind of threw him off his his stride. And I thought he was having issues missing his jab at the line of scrimmage consistently in that game. He missed it on Doug Baldwin. He missed it on that deep ball to Jermon Brown that was underthrown by Wilson. And there were a couple other instances where it looked like he was just mistiming that, that punch at the line of scrimmage just a little bit. And it was throwing off the entire flow of his backpedal and how he was covering people. So hopefully that's something they can work on kind of get him more confident, more consistent with that initial jab and and get him to be more effective in press coverage because I think they're going to need him as the season goes on. Yeah. Okay. Well, that does it for us. I am at Garrisisti on Twitter. Jamie? At lightning underscore round. God fucking damn it. (laughs) (laughs) We needed it twice, huh? We'll see you next week after another Charters win against the Raiders. Thanks, everybody. Hello, I'm Ashley Carmen. I'm Caitlin Tiffany. We're the hosts of Why'd You Push That Button, the Verge's show about all the choices technology forces us to make. We're back for season three, talking about questions like, why do you delete your tweets? And why do you type in lowercase letters that make you seem like a serial killer? And why are you on an exclusive dating app? You're not that special. We're releasing a new episode every Wednesday, and you can find us anywhere you typically find podcasts, which is Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts. So go ahead and subscribe and check us out.